Welcome to The Bunker Daily. I'm Ros Taylor. We often talk about people on the front line of the pandemic, with hospital visits largely banned and many people's lives reduced to the home, food, shopping and exercise, it can begin to seem like a place that's very far away. Talking to me today is someone truly on the front line, Rachel Clark, a doctor in Oxfordshire. She works in palliative care, looking after people at the end of their lives, and her previous book, Dear Life, was about dying. It's a very moving account of how her own father's death influenced her work as a doctor. I read it a few weeks after my own father's death in April to try and find, I don't know, some kind of closure, and I found it very profound and helpful. And I've been looking forward to talking to her ever since. So Rachel, hello and welcome to The Bunker. Thanks very much, Roz. And I'm really glad that you found the book helpful. That's pretty much exactly why I wrote it. Your new book, Breathtaking, is about working in the NHS during the pandemic. You finished it in early summer when we thought that the worst might be over. Did you think then that 10 months after the first lockdown, the NHS would see even higher deaths and more people in hospital? Not for a million years. I really believed that the worst was behind us, that it it just couldn't possibly be like that again. We would never allow it as a country to be like that again. We learned so much so quickly in the first four or five months of 2020. We learned what we needed to do to control the virus. We knew what had to happen. We needed proper test and trace. And there was this tremendous work going on at at Fever Pitch about vaccines. And, And even though we know as doctors that respiratory viruses often resurge in in winter months, I don't think any of us foresaw that we would be in worse conditions, much worse conditions now than we even were in the peak of the, the first wave last year. In the book, you write about a gathering sense of dread as you begin to realise that hospitals would be overwhelmed as they were being in parts of Italy. And there was a sense of this can't be happening this couldn't happen here in early March, I think. A lot of us struggled to grasp the magnitude of what was going on and the government was clearly blindsided. But why do you think there was such a disconnect between what was clearly obvious to people like you working in the NHS and Boris Johnson's kind of gung-ho optimism that it'll all be all right? Did the message not get through or do you think he was in denial? I don't think we can sort of focus blame entirely on Boris Johnson. Clearly, he was being advised by uh, SAGE, his committee of scientific advisors. He had a a chief medical officer, chief scientific officer. And presumably, they were offering advice. And either he wasn't listening to that advice, or the advice was wrong. And I I, I guess, in order to answer that question, we need a, a full, comprehensive public inquiry to understand exactly what went wrong. If it is that our Prime Minister wasn't listening to the science, or worse, he heard the science but decided to juggle it against other competing political imperatives, such as you know, maybe his own popularity, not wanting to be perceived as a draconian prime minister, then I think that's inexcusable because the writing was on the wall. We knew that cases were rising exponentially. They were they were doubling every few days. Italy was two weeks ahead of us and we all could see with sort of hideous horrible clarity that their exponentially rising deaths 
what are deaths in two weeks time and that's exactly what happened and I think for me the worst moment was when Boris Johnson allowed the Cheltenham races to go ahead that was in in mid-March and hundreds of thousands of people crammed together in in the stands at the Cheltenham race course clearly creating a super spreader event at a time when when the rest of Europe was locking themselves down because they could see what was coming and as a doctor I couldn't sleep at night. I was so traumatized by that happening because it was unforgivable. It it was a kind of willful blindness on the part of the government that we knew was going to be measured out in avoidable deaths in our hospitals. And that's exactly what happened. In the new book, you talk about how the pandemic has forced some people to confront the reality of death and, for example, making a will, things like that, thinking about what they want the end of their lives to be like if they can have some control over it. Yet, the thing that strikes me often is this is the first pandemic, in Britain at any rate, where death remains largely hidden from view in care homes, in hospitals, and a non-trivial number of people actually believe the government has invented the pandemic. Um, with these extraordinary conspiracy theories. Why are we still so determined to look away? So I think there are two different things going on there. I think that there is a very small but powerful and vocal minority in this country of individuals who, for whatever motives, are, are desperate to deny the reality of this pandemic. And they'll say COVID isn't real, all the cases are false positives, this is a government conspiracy. And they will do everything in their power to shut down and silence anyone who says otherwise, in particular voices who are on the front line of the NHS like me, because we have first-hand testimony. It's 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 hard to make that testimony go away. So, so I get actual abuse on social media for saying that COVID is real and deadly. I have been called Hitler, Harold Shipman. I've been accused of being a child abuser. I've had threats, rape threats, death threats, that kind of thing to to shut me down. But I think that horrible minority is different to maybe the rest of the population who finds the world we inhabit at the moment, a world of of literal daily televised death tolls, very traumatic, very frightening, and, and understandably so. Sometimes I think what you don't see, because it's hidden behind closed doors and visitors are by and large not allowed in hospitals at the moment, what you don't see is is worse because your imagination can run riot and you imagine horrors behind the hospital doors precisely because you can't see the reality. And and to be perfectly frank, it is pretty horrific right now. Um, And I know that I'm not alone as an NHS doctor when I say I'm incredibly relieved that the NHS, NHS England, have finally opened their doors to the television cameras, the news crews again, because we need to show the reality first and foremost to make the conspiracy theorists go away, but also to help people understand how very, very serious this is and how if they obey the rules and stay at home, they're literally playing their part in saving people's lives. Your work as a doctor has been about trying to ensure people have the best possible death, that they die as painlessly and peacefully as possible, ideally with the people they love. And that isn't how they die with COVID, is it? 
It's really difficult, yes. One of the, the saddest things is that the ways in which we ordinarily show each other our love and humanity, i.e. through our voice, speech, touch, physical proximity, all of those are simultaneously the ways through which COVID spreads and infects each other. And so we have to put up barriers and we have to separate people to, to save them, to stop them becoming infected. And that means that inevitably there is a risk that if you are dying in hospital at the moment, it is a lonelier, harder experience than it would be otherwise because we cannot bring in your friends and family, your loved ones who ordinarily we would dearly love to be there at the bedside. Most hospitals, even in the first wave, many hospitals, but but all hospitals now are allowing a visitor when we think someone is at the end of life. But of course, sometimes people may deteriorate too quickly and we might get that wrong. And what that means is if family can't be there, then that job, that vital job rests on the shoulders of the NHS. And I I know, for instance, in, in my intensive care unit in Oxford, the staff there are absolutely determined that no matter how horrendous conditions, no matter how hard they're working, there's this base level that they will never, ever fall below. And that is making sure that anyone who dies has somebody with them. There is always someone with a patient who's dying, a nurse or a healthcare assistant. Someone will be there holding their hand, talking to them, ensuring they're not alone. And I think that is absolutely vital. And in a way, it's vital for staff as much as patients, because it would be so inhuman if that weren't the case. I imagine there are quite a few people listening now who are immensely relieved to hear you say that. As a palliative care doctor, you normally work in a hospice. How were you drawn to that specialism? Well, it's definitely the unfashionable end of medicine. I don't think many people sort of start out in medical school thinking, I'm going to work with patients who are definitely going to die and I'll be intimately involved in their death and dying. If they want kudos or glamour or high status medicine, then you go for heart surgery or brain surgery. We're not the rock stars of medicine. We're basically the dowdy support act and we sort of creep around in the shadows and some even other doctors aren't entirely sure what we do. I knew that I wanted to become a doctor for really simple reasons. And I was unashamed to say them. I, I, I wanted to help people. I wanted to do a job where every day I went to work and, and felt like I, in a tiny way, was doing something decent. And that meant definitely wanting to work with one of those many groups of patients who are particularly vulnerable. I think all patients are vulnerable, but some such as people with disabilities or mental health problems or the very elderly um, are particularly vulnerable. They don't have much of a voice always or, or much. many people advocating on their behalf. And to my mind, people who are terminally ill and approaching the end of their life were in that category, often marginalised, often too unwell to advocate for themselves. And there was this enormous unmet need, it became quickly apparent to me, to ensure that we try to get dying right for as many people as possible. And that doesn't always happen. There are far too many people, even pre-pandemic, not having 
deaths that are as comfortable and dignified as we are capable of ensuring. And and I just wanted to roll up my sleeves and be a part of that because it was a way I felt I could really help a very vulnerable group of patients. How can we get better at dealing with the reality and inevitability of death as a society, do you think? Are there practical things that we could do that we currently perhaps avoid doing? Yes, definitely. And I think the most important of those is to try to have a chat with your family, your friends, the people you love about how you would like things to go if the worst happened and if you became gravely unwell. And of course, we don't want to do that. That's a bit like sort of voluntarily choosing to do your tax return in advance. Um, you know, something I always leave till the 31st of January every year. No one wants to, to confront things that we can avoid and put off. But the risk is if we put it off and we never have those chats, then all of a sudden you might end up in a situation where you're incapacitated and your husband or wife or mum or dad are asked by a doctor like me, do you have any idea what they would have wished for, what their views were about resuscitation, going on a ventilator, these kinds of things? And your family will be heartbroken because they will realise in that moment of crisis, no, they have no idea at all because you never had that conversation. So I would just really encourage people to have a chat with each other about their wishes in advance. It doesn't have to be a a, a big, sombre experience. You can just have a five-minute chat over a cup of tea and find out what your family would wish for because then if the worst happens, you're prepared and you've already talked about it. Some people know 100% for certain they would never want to go to intensive care and be on a ventilator. They would rather be at home with their family, their loved ones at the end. And if you know that in advance, then you have the best chance of being the author of the way your life ends rather than the victim of, of circumstances in which other people sort of try and make decisions on your behalf. So that's really, really important. Just have a chat about it. Those conversations are invariably so much less daunting than you fear they will be. Do you feel like a different kind of doctor from the one you were a year ago? Has this changed you, this pandemic? Yes, it has. What happened in the first wave and what is now being repeated is tens of thousands of NHS doctors and nurses doing their absolute utmost to provide the best standards of care they can in conditions, pandemic conditions that are so overstretched, so overwhelming, that we simply cannot provide the high quality care that we all aspire to. And the psychological cost of wanting so desperately to do your best for patients, but actually not being able to because we're all stretched so thinly is really hard to bear. And and I have found in this second wave, I have started having panic attack symptoms. I have had chest pain, difficulty breathing. Uh, I felt my pulse racing. I've sort of felt my pulse and it's been 120 beats a minute, which is far, far higher than it should be. And all of that is the physical 
effect of this this corrosive experience of going in and doing your best over and over again, but always feeling like it's not good enough because this is battlefield medicine. This is this is pandemic medicine. It's not normal. It's not how it should ever be. And I think I am going to come away from this needing to lick my wounds somewhat. I'll never, ever stop trying to do my best for patients. And every single nurse and doctor I know is in the same boat, but there were very high rates of post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, anxiety, burnout now among staff. And they're really running on empty. We're doing our utmost, but it's definitely coming at a huge, huge cost to everyone on the front line. How do you feel when you hear Boris Johnson saying, as he quite often does, that the NHS has coped magnificently during the pandemic? I want to use adjectives that are... But some are unrepeatable, uh, and, and and some will probably sound like an exaggeration. But I feel murderous with rage. I feel blind with fury. I I've, I struggle to find the words to communicate how much I am burning with frustration and anger when I hear the prime minister trot out those glib claims, either. He is so detached from what's really happening on the front line that he simply doesn't know what he's talking about, or much, much worse than that, and I strongly suspect this is the truth. He does know exactly how bad things are, but he is spinning a line to the public about how magnificently the NHS is coping because he knows that he is the man who promised to protect the NHS some 10, 11 months ago, and he has manifestly failed to do so. He didn't make the difficult decisions that should have been made back in September when Sage, his scientific advisors, called for a circuit breaker. He ignored them. In December, when his advisors pleaded with him to introduce lockdown, he ignored them. He still pursued a populist agenda of a five-day free-for-all of everybody mixing over Christmas. And he didn't lock down until the NHS was already overwhelmed and we were already seeing patients dying over and over again who shouldn't have died, who needn't have died, if only we'd had a prime minister who was capable of putting the difficult decisions above cheap populism and wanting to be liked by his population. And, and, and honestly, I think that's unforgivable. I'm a doctor. I have to tell people really difficult, heartbreaking things every day at work. And if I didn't do that, then I'd be rubbish. I'd be a failure as a doctor. And I just think politicians, if they're worth their salt and if they're leaders, they need to be the same and they need to stand up when required and say the difficult things to the public and make the difficult decisions on behalf of us because it's the right thing to do. And in Boris Johnson, we've got a man who's pathologically incapable of doing that. And it's costing literal lives, British citizens' lives. The chances are most of us will see a new pandemic in our lives. The best estimate seems to be a new one emerging every five years. What must we do better next time? The good thing, if if we can talk about good things arising from COVID at the moment, is that in times of, of crisis and calamity, we have 
accelerated learning as well as trauma. So in every great catastrophe in recent years, wonderful innovations have arisen. Things like penicillin arising from the Second World War, for instance, and ushering in this incredible medical treatment in the form of antibiotics that has revolutionized life expectancy across the globe. And so too, I think that the, the trauma and bloodshed of this pandemic is going to go hand in hand with extraordinary innovation. And we've already seen that. We've we've already got two incredibly safe and incredibly effective vaccines licensed for use in Britain. And that's incredible. That's full, you know, round of applause to all the scientists who have achieved that. It's magnificent. I think the other lessons, a lot of them are about getting infrastructure right. There is boring, practical, infrastructural stuff about ensuring we've got proper, robust testing and tracing facilities in place, which we still don't at the moment, despite the government having spent billions of pounds um, trying to set that up. We've learned what to do. We've got countries across the globe, a small number of countries who have done everything right, like New Zealand or some of the Southeast Asian countries They've adopted this zero tolerance approach approach to COVID and tried to suppress it completely. And they've been successful in doing so. And I think we need to look at those models and apply them in Britain as well. So it's okay to make mistakes in the heat of a pandemic. Every world leader, every government's going to get things wrong. That's that's fine. We are we're all human. We understand that. But the unforgivable thing is not to learn from your mistakes and not to do things differently next time. And I think um, in Britain, in particular, sadly, with our world beating death toll, we've got a whole litany of mistakes and things we've got wrong. But the key thing is to get them right next time. And 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 as you say, there will absolutely be a next time. Rachel, thank you so much for talking to me. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. Rachel Clark's new book, Breathtaking, Inside the NHS in a Time of Pandemic, is published by Little Brown on 26th of January. Thanks for listening to The Bunker. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider backing us on Patreon. Search Bunker Patreon. We'll be back tomorrow for another edition of The Bunker Daily. Until then, keep safe. Bunker Daily was presented by Ross Taylor. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production. <laughs>